And so let's go ahead and get into this morning John's Gospel. Last week we looked at the, uh, an introduction really to the Gospel of John because John was a unique character and his Gospel is very unique among the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover similar material from different vantage points, of course, but the Gospel of John stands out as unique because it really presents Jesus as the Word of God and that the Word was God. And Jesus is God. And that message right there is really what separates everything in the world from Christianity. Because we believe, in, we believe that Jesus died for our sin. God in the flesh paid the price for mine and your sin. That fact alone is, folks, that's everything. Do you understand? I mean, it really is everything. Because here's the thing. If, if he didn't come and save us, if he didn't redeem us, if he wasn't God in the flesh, then seriously, we're, we're wasting our time. Everything we've been doing, everything the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years has been a grave waste of time and a great deception. In fact, even before Christ was born, they were looking forward to his coming. The Old Testament prophets prophesying specifically, hundreds of prophecies of specific things about him when he would come. And they too have wasted their time if Jesus is not the Messiah, the son of the living God, God in the flesh. Does that make sense? And see, you and I are very well taught. Pastor Jeff had taught us for years, and hopefully I'm carrying on that very same thing. It's important that we know these things, and we know them well. You know, I remember watching a a football game one time, actually a Super Bowl, and, the, and my point is, fundamentals are important, and, and this is why I'm bringing this up. I was watching the Super Bowl, and the, the score was tied, and, the, and it was coming down right to the very end, the last few seconds of the game, and the quarterback threw the ball, and the guy caught it, and he's like at the 20-yard line, and he's running, and he's running, and the guy behind him failed at the fundamentals. He could have tackled him. And they probably still would have won because they would have hit a field goal. But my point is, he reached out and he just kind of grabbed, he just kind of, he leaped forward and he just kind of grabbed his legs, but it it was just kind of like a, he didn't even put his hands together. My point is, is this, in the very beginnings, for those of you guys who have taken football, what do they tell you when you tackle somebody? You grab the legs and you enclose them and hold them in like this. And you see so many of these fundamental things being ignored, and that's the difference in a Super Bowl championship. Fundamentals. And fundamentals for you and I are just as important. And what we're talking about today is the fundamentals of Christianity. This is what sets us apart. This is why we are who we are. This is why he is who he is. These are fundamentals. And even though you may have heard or even read this gospel a number of times, I want you to approach it this morning and while we're in John with fresh eyes and a fresh heart. Let it challenge you again and let the review of this get deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart so that in your very being, you know these things like you know, every, like you know anything else, like you know them better than anything else. Because here's the deal. When I know the fundamentals really well, They are right on the top of my lips. They're right on top of my heart, and I'm easily sharing them. And the fundamentals is what people need. What separates a professional, even a professional athlete, from a non-professional is hopefully a professional has mastered the basics, the fundamentals. 
And those who do really well, they know the fundamentals really, really well. They don't spend all their time doing trick shots and learning how to do that. No, they learn the fundamentals and they know them so well. And just by knowing the fundamentals, believe it or not, it puts them in a whole different league from those who don't really focus on the fundamentals. Does that make any sense? I've learned that in my own life. Fundamentals are very important. And that's why we study this book. That's why we study the Bible. And remember, John's theme really is recorded for us in the 20th chapter, in the 31st verse. And notice what John says. He says, but these things are written, (coughs) excuse me, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In fact, that's the whole crux of the whole gospel. Everything that we're going to read in this gospel is going to be cherry-picked, and God is going to be showing us that only God can do these things. Only God can do these things. Only God can speak to a blind man and have him see. Only God can speak and things happen. Let's look at verse 1. We looked at verse 1 last week. We're going to quickly review it and go on, hopefully finish the 18 verses. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that God didn't have a beginning. But in the beginning, in our beginning, when, when the creation was created, when, when, if you remember, what did it say in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means if he created the heavens and the earth, he had to pre-exist to create it, right? So he had to be there in the beginning to create what he created that we're all enjoying. He had to be there, and he was. It's in our beginning, but God is without end. He is without end. And in the beginning was the word. This word is the Greek word logos. We looked at this last week too. It's the very thought, the very expression of God. Remember when Jesus said to Philip, because Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it suffices us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the Logos. He is the representation of God the Father. They are equal. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all one. They are all one. And we looked at... John chapter, uh, or the first epistle, John's first epistle, it says there are three that bear record and witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Even those of you who grew up in a Catholic background, you knew very well there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John is saying there's the Father, the Word, the Logos, and the Holy Spirit. The same thing. Who is the Logos? It's Jesus Christ. He is the Logos. He's the very representation of God. He's the, uh, a logo is something that represents something else, isn't it? When you see the Apple logo, you know what you're expecting. You're going to buy an iPhone. (laughs) You know what you're expecting when you see that. When you see the golden arches, you know what you're expecting. When you see Jesus Christ, and again, these are bad comparisons because no one can compare to him. But when you see him, that's why he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything that I am, my character, I mean, think of the load that would be. 
even a sense of humor is, equi- is, is, is like God's sense of humor. Do you think God has a sense of humor? I think he does. We see some of it recorded in the Gospels for us. But he is the word. When he came back, or when he comes back in the second coming, what did it say? We just looked at this a few weeks ago when we were in Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus returns, it says he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God, the logos of God. That's who he is. He's the representation. And he was with God, it says in verse 1. The word was with God. He was there in the beginning. There was no competition. There was no separateness. They were all unique, but there was unity in the Trinity. A very difficult concept. Children seem to understand it, but adults, we have a problem with it. And notice, the word was God. Whoever this word is, is God Almighty in the flesh. And we looked at how the, uh, the cults have twisted that. Jehovah's Witnesses, how they've twisted that verse and created a whole new doctrine. They don't know who Jesus is. And see, people need to know who Jesus is because even within Protestant churches, there's a different Jesus being portrayed. It's not the Jesus of the Bible necessarily. Don't assume when you walk into a church today that you're going to be, uh, the, the real Jesus is going to be presented to you because if it's not in the Word of God, it's not the real Jesus. If they try to talk about a Jesus that's okay with you living in sin, and it's okay that you drink, and it's okay that you're having an adulterous relationship. After all, God's a God of love. He knows how you feel. That's a different Jesus that they're preaching, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. I find it ironic that we in America have been so blessed with so many materials, so many biblical resources And yet, we can still be one of the most biblically illiterate nations in the world. In the world around us, in the country that we live in, many are biblically illiterate. They don't know what we're talking about. And so how important is it? It's very important. Notice in verse 2, it says, he was in the beginning, this word, now we see that it's a he. So we know that this word is a he. Of course, we already know the cat's already out of the bag We know that Jesus is the word, but it says he was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning. In Hebrews, it says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Notice that. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, one of my favorite verses that speak of God's pre-incarnate Uh, being it says for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity God inhabits eternity he always has I've always had a real sometimes have you thought about this it just kind of makes your head go like a like a kernel of popcorn when you think about God always was think about going back billions of years he was there he was there, and he was, he was content. But yet he desired fellowship, and he made all of the heavens and the earth, and he created man specifically on the planet. We're the only ones, folks, in the universe that has life. Nothing else in the universe, because of where it would be located, could sustain life. You'd freeze to death or you'd burn up. We are a privileged planet, and God saw it so. But he, 
Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place to him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Jesus is the uncreated one. The devil even was created, but Jesus was never created. He was uncreated. (laughs) He's always been the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's one I can trust. The one who has been around the one who is benevolent, truly benevolent. In John's gospel, in the 17th chapter, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he said this in verse 5. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself and with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was. And then in verse 24 of that same chapter, he says, Father, I desire desire that they also, speaking of the church, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. He always was. I find great, great comfort in that, that we're not some mistake we're not some mistake. In the Bible, we even see, we know that Jesus became incarnate as a human being through the Virgin Mary, but even before his incarnation at the birth of Christ through Mary, Jesus wasn't limited in the incarnation. The Bible tells us, even in Genesis 18, it talks about pre-incarnate visitations of Jesus Christ. We call them theophanies, where clearly God is standing before Someone like Abraham. We don't have time to read it, but I would encourage you to put in the margin of your Bible, Genesis 18, read it. These three angels that come, one of them is God. One of them is Jehovah. One of them is Jesus Christ. And you look at the words there, and it's amazing when it says, and the Lord said, that's Jehovah. That's what it says. God, Jesus Christ, in a pre-incarnate form, was talking to Abraham before the, the other two angels destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham worshipped him. This could only mean that Jesus is God. He's Almighty God. You recall in Joshua chapter 5, before the children of Israel, before Joshua went into going to Jericho to destroy it, that a commander of the army of the Lord stood before him. And then it says in Joshua 5, verse 14, that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army, who we believe is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ, said, take your sandal off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Jesus Christ, he was not limited even in his incarnation. He came before and he also came after. When we see in uh, Acts chapter 23 as Paul is standing before the council in Jerusalem before he would finally be sent to Rome where he would be beheaded by Nero. While he was still in Jerusalem, what does it say in Acts 23? But the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so I picked those verses specifically, because can you see how cool it is? His in, he, even before he came into the form of man as, as, as in, the, in the birth of Mary, through the birth of Mary, Jesus 
visited the earth and different individuals at different times in the Old Testament. Then he became incarnate. And even after his resurrection, after his death, after his resurrection, and even after his ascension, he's still visiting people like Paul. The Lord stood by him and said, Paul, you must go before and and bear witness in Jerusalem, but you must also go to Rome. Is he limited by human flesh? He's not. And if he is God, I would expect that to be so. He could peer in at any time. What a privilege that would be. Amen? Amen. In verse 3, it says, And all things were made through him, and without him nothing nothing was made that was made. That'll twist your brain a little bit. What does it say in Colossians? Paul writing to them, he said, Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Notice, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and in him, through him and in him. Jesus is the one. God the Father saw fit to say, you know what, son? You do it. He created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, Elohim. And he is before all things. And all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. He is the very glue that holds everything together. And one day he's going to release that. And it's all going to vaporize. Peter tells that in fervent heat. And then he will create a new heavens and new earth. Wherein dwells righteousness. Where you and I will be for eternity. How's that? You looking forward to that? I'm really looking forward to that. There's nothing. Is there anything? Show of hands. Is it, raise your hand if there's anything in this life that's really going to compare to what's coming. Just raise your Well, of course, nobody's going to raise their hand, right? Ushers, grab that man and that woman. Take them in the back and counsel them severely. <laughs> no, 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 no. God is amazing. It's through him, through him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, he says, Yet for, for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom are all things and through whom we live. He made all things. And even though he made all things, it doesn't necessarily mean that those things that he created are, uh, especially in the fallen state that they are now, they don't adequately represent the, the attributes, the nature of God. You know, certainly God is in nature, and he's in all the things that he created, but is it, is it the perfect representation of him? No, not in the fallen state. When you look at nature, <laughs> it's kind of cruel, isn't it? Think of the laws of nature. You can have a saint walk off a cliff by accident, and the same thing happens to him as the guy who was a a, a serial killer who walks off the same cliff. He dies the same way. There's no justice, really. The laws of nature are the laws of nature that God created. And you look at the animal kingdom. Is there grace in the animal kingdom? No, it's survival of the fittest. Is that a great representation of God? No, it's not. Notice verse 4, in him was life. In Jesus, in the Logos, was life. The word is Zoe, life. If you've got a name Zoe, your name means life. Yeah, means life. And notice, and the life was the light of men. 
And this light, this word literally means moral. It's referring to all things moral and spiritually pure and of the truth. And when the very life of Jesus is in you, you truly are living, and it's like you are seeing everything around you in a very different lens. Isn't that true for you? When I got saved, all of a sudden, it's like my glasses changed. And I put on a new set of glasses, and all of a sudden, everything looked different. It was literally that way. Is that way for you? Because you're looking through a different lens now. The very Spirit of God in you. Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may also be, and where I go you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, how do we know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the Zoe. I am the life. I'm the life. In every possible facet of that life, I am physical, spiritual, perfection. I am all of that. That's what Jesus said. And notice back in our text, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend, or the literal meaning is the the darkness didn't overcome the light. Darkness cannot overcome or overpower the light. In Ephesians 5, it says, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Whenever something is exposed, that is light. That is light. And so I don't get upset when something is going on in my life and and it's exposed. Whatever that is, is light. And God loves you so much that he's not willing to have you go on in darkness. And at times he will expose those things. Because unless they're exposed, they're not going to get healed. And there's some marriages in this room There's some marriages of people that are watching online that are in a very bad place. And you're not coming into the light. You're not seeking counsel. Your marriage is on the rocks. But instead of humbling yourself and asking for help and praying to God, maybe you are praying to God, but are you getting counsel So important. Has Jesus shined on your darkness? He shined on mine. And he's continuing to shine on my darkness. Any darkness within me, God is shining his light on, and he's doing the same for you. And a conscience is a wonderful thing. When you, when God, when you were born, God gave you a conscience. You know the difference. You know when you're doing wrong, don't you? Unless your conscience is so seared, and we'll look at that shortly, you know the difference. You have a conscience. He's continuing to shine on our darkness. Are you willing for the light to shine on your darkness? Because God's not going to force it. He's not going to force you. Whatever makes manifest is light. Let, it be, let the light shine upon it that it could be healed. As long as it stays in the darkness, it will never, ever get better. It will only, only get worse. That is the truth about life. And it even is a law of nature. 
I think spiritually and even physically, the law of thermodynamics, things are always in a state of decay. That's why a marriage can never go on autopilot. You go on autopilot and you may think you're just going like this, but you're actually going like this. It has to be worked on. It has to be developed. It has to be continued. Life needs to be breathed into it constantly. We need to be constantly challenged by that. Are you challenged by that? Are you willing to be challenged? We need it. What reason do you have for not believing in, trusting in, giving your heart and life completely over to Jesus Christ? What is your reason? Do you have a reason? But there are those who can become so calloused that they, they're beyond feeling. Paul, speaking to Timothy, said, Now in the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, which we are living in, by the way, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to de- deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. This word seared is, cauter- uh, let me see if I can pronounce this, because it, it's important that I do, because it sounds like another word. Cauteriadzo, or cauteriadzo is the name of the word. It's where we get the word cauterize. Somebody who has a seared conscience is someone who is beyond feeling. They, they, they're just, they, and I've met people like this. There's no remorse whatsoever. They can go out and kill somebody, and they're like, once time for lunch. You know, there's just, they got a seared conscience, and that doesn't happen overnight. Those are choices that are made little by little. But this word literally means to render in, unsensitive. It, it's, it's just seared. To where the light of the gospel has no effect on them anymore. They don't want it to have an effect. It kind of reminds me of Pharaoh. When it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart a number of times, and God, and then it finally says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He cauterized it. He said, is that what you want, Pharaoh? Is that the way you're going to live? And be careful what you ask for, right? Because you just might get it. That's why it's so important that our hearts are soft and pliable, and we're constantly letting the word of God water it and soften it. And guys and, our, and ladies in our marriages, let it be softened. Soften, soften. Let the spirit, let the water of the word soften our hearts. Soften our hearts. You do not want to have a seared conscience. I pray that nobody here has a seared conscience. But make no mistake, it's little decisions that you make that bring you to a place where your heart is so hardened, it's seared But God. Amen? Amen. But God. Notice there was a man, verse 6, sent from God whose name was John. We know this is John the Baptist. This is not John the, the Apostle that he's speaking of here. This was a cousin to Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35 and 36, it tells us that, that Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary. And when they had their child, John the Baptist, I mean, we call him John the Baptist. They just called him John But we call him John the Baptist because he was the one who baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. We know that. And again, John and Jesus were related. And again, what great credibility does this give to the message? This one who knew Jesus. They probably went up to the temple at different times in the year because they would travel often in families and caravans as they would go up to Jerusalem. Jesus knew John, and John knew Jesus, and what better person to know whether Jesus was really perfect or not, whether he was the Messiah or not. Do you understand that even, say, uh, you know, in their teenage years, if John and Jesus were together, 
And Jesus said, hey, let's go over to the country store and steal bubble gum. Which I did, by the way, when I was little. Of course, you did too. Um, if there was any time where there was darkness in him, if there was sin in his life, John could say, you know what, this is clearly not the one. But the Bible says that Jesus was without sin. Even when, as a young person, he obeyed his parents. He was perfect. He was perfect. And there's the example for us. Of course, yes, he's God in the flesh, but he demands that of us too. And the Spirit of God in you, now you have the capability to do it. And when you blow it, we have an advocate in heaven. We can go to him and confess, right? And he washes it away. What greater thing could that be? So John, of all people, would know whether he was really the, the true one or not. And John was the one who testified, and we'll see that next week. He said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God the Father revealed it to John, to John the Baptist. My cousin, are you serious, Lord? Oh, that makes sense. You know, I never seen him talking back to Mary and Joseph. I never seen him stealing. I never seen him do a, oh my goodness. How could I have missed that? And all of a sudden, the scriptures start aligning. The, the, the Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah and Micah and all these scriptures. This is him. This is him. Good grief, he was, he was born in Bethlehem. Micah said that. Isaiah said that he would, wow, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That was Mary. Everyone was concerned that maybe she had a night out in the town and didn't tell Joseph. No, the Spirit of God implanted that seed in Mary. That was a virgin birth, a very critical tenant of our faith, by the way. Joseph, there was no Joseph's blood in Jesus. I love what it says in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's who Jesus was. So this man came for a witness, verse 7, back in our text, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. You know, how unfortunate it is that you'd have to bring somebody's attention to the light. You know, you turn on the light and it gets your attention, doesn't it? But when the light came into the world, the darkness didn't comprehend it. And this is a further indictment against man. What does it say in Psalm 14? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In fact, in the original Greek, it just says no God. Or in the original Hebrew, excuse me. It just says no God. The fool has said in his heart, no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. And this is supposed to build your esteem. I don't know if you can feel that yet. But they have done abominable works. There's none that's done good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. And what is his reply? They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Boy, that just blows holes in my, my pride ship. Blows holes in my pride ship. That's really who I am. That's why I received Christ. That's why you received Christ. You knew in your heart. That's why we need to be born again. Are you born again? Jesus didn't say, this is probably a good idea. No, he said, you must. You must be born again. It's not a, something that you might want to think about once you retire. Before you go to Florida and play golf and fish, Probably, good, probably a good idea. You might want to think about it. It's a really good idea. 
You might want to receive Christ and be born again. But, you know, no, he said, you must. You must be born again. And John's ministry, we're going to look more at him next week, but his ministry was really summed up in Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, getting people prepared. And basically what John was going to do is he was going to grab these people that he had baptized and says, here, Jesus, now she's yours. I've done all I can. I've prepared the way for you. Now you take her. And that's what he said. That's what he did with his disciples. That's when his disciples were hanging around. And we'll see this next week or in the following weeks. There he is. The son of God. Follow him. John knew his ministry was over. Six months. God had a great plan for him. And he followed it. And it cost him everything. But do you think John is upset right now in glory going, man, I wished I would have done something different with my life. Wish I would have gone to college and become a lawyer. No, John said, you know what? If I could go back and do it all over again, I would do it a million times over. Because now he's in the very presence of the one. Verse 8, he was not that light. John the Baptist was not that light. But he was sent to bear witness of the light. And he was the forerunner. The word witness is martyrio, which is where we get our word martyr from. This is somebody who literally has evidence. that They have evidence. They've obtained a good report of what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've handled. And even in a court of law today, the greatest witness is an eyewitness. That, that, an eyewitness holds the most credibility of any other witness. The person who says, I've seen it with my own eyes. I was there. I've got an, I, there's no alibi. I was there. I saw it. In fact, that other person I witnessed too of the same exact thing. That is huge in a court of law. And John the Baptist saying, I am an eyewitness. And so were many others, eyewitnesses. This was not something that was handed down through the ages and slowly tampered with. No, this was... These were eyewitness accounts. Read the preamble to the book of Acts and the book of Luke. Eyewitness accounts, folks. None of this business of handing stuff down years and over years and everything getting corrupted. No, it wasn't like that. The, 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 the people in the academia want you to believe that because if they believe in a God, then they've got to change their whole theology. They can't teach evolution anymore once they believe that Jesus is God. He says, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Every man who comes into the world. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness. Jesus is the true light. In John eight twelve, it says, I am the light of the world, Jesus says, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light, light of life. I'm so thankful that the light of God is inside of my heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit, aren't you? I'm so glad for the Spirit of God changing me daily, conforming me to the image of Christ as he is you. Do you realize what a, what a privilege that is? What a blessing that is? Are you taking advantage of it? Does he have more of you today than he did yesterday? Let him have more of you today than he did yesterday. Give your heart completely, unreservedly over to Jesus Christ. He is the only one 
that we have to do. He is the only one. Amen? In verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Notice, we read that passage in Colossians chapter 1. Everything was made through him, and by him, and for him were they created. In him all things consist, and the world did not know him. What a shame that the the creator, the one who created all things, comes to his creation, and they're like, who are you? (laughs) Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. Jesus came through the Jewish line, through the line of Judah, through the line of David. Matthew and Luke's genealogy show us these things. He came to his own. He came to the Jews first, and they did not receive him. Rather, they rejected him. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 13, 57? He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. They rejected him. The people of Nazareth, as he was preaching in a synagogue, He would heal on the Sabbath and they would reject him because he broke their law. You know, sometimes people just need to relax (laughs) and trust the Lord. You know, he's so much better. He's so much more gracious than anything you can possibly imagine. People think, you know, everything is starched with him. Everything is like, oh, you better follow the law. I'm going to crush you like a grape. And he's like, just relax and enjoy him. And you know what? I believe the more you do that, the more you'll be walking in the spirit. Following him. I used to be so uptight about being, you know, right with God. And then finally one day it hit me. It's like, you know what, God, I'm just going to trust you. I'm praying to you, I'm asking you to do this in my life, to conform me, to cleanse me from my sin. And there's nothing I can do to make it happen any quicker. Do you understand? We just got to relax, pray, and do, (laughs) and enjoy. It's really a funny thing because it's, it's something that everybody trips over. The first big hurdle is believing that you can be saved just by believing in Jesus Christ. That was the big stumbling block for Jews and Greeks. And then once you get beyond that, discovering his will for your life and how to walk in this newness of life, how to walk in this new life, being born again. How do I walk now? Well, it's a little simpler than what you might think. And isn't it true that it's all very simple, but yet intensely profound at the same time? It is. It's simple yet profound. And, and I think the, we can enjoy it more the moment we can just let go and say, you know what, I'm tired of stressing and fighting and kicking I want to surrender, Lord, my will to you. Have you surrendered to him? Surrender your will to him. Surrender everything to him and say, Lord, I don't want to be afraid anymore. I don't want to be afraid anymore. I want to be useful. I can't even do it, Lord. Help me. And a heart like that, what does the Bible say? A broken and a contrite heart he will no way despise. And a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. Just the little steps. Take the little step today and the little step tomorrow. And God is going, I'm so blessed, so blessed. Keep going. Keep going. I wonder if there's like a a pep rally around us when we do right things. A spiritual pep rally. The angel's going, "Look look what he did. He did something right. God, look. He did something right. He actually did what you said, a miracle. 
And other times he's like, oh, I've got to send three or four more angels. These guys are going to get paid time and a half. Can you get this guy out of the way? Can you get Rob out of the way? He's trying so hard. He's stumbling. He's got slobber all over his face. He's just a mess. Can you clean him up? Somebody just give him a rag and wipe his face off. Take him off in a stretcher and tend to his wounds. But for heaven's sake, do something with that individual. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right. And I love this. This means the privilege. In the original language, it's, it's a right, but it's a privilege. As many as received him, have you received Christ? It is a privilege to become a child of God. What a great thing. The greatest of all privileges is to be a child of God, to have that moniker. I'm a child of God. What a blessing. So glad to be a child of God. Before I was a child of hell. I was. Filthy, rotten scoundrel that I used to be. But God, but God, and maybe you were a filthy, rotten scoundrel. Anybody? Raise your hand if you were a filthy, rotten scoundrel. Okay, only two people. Okay, that's good. No, I'm just kidding. Those online are going, only two people? No, most of us raised our hand. That's a prerequisite to being a child of God, is knowing that you're in need of a healer, that you're in need of a savior. People who are well don't need a savior because they already know Jesus, but those who are ill, they need him. He's a a physician, the great physician. The fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you're a born-again believer today is no mistake. God knew that you would give your heart to him. He knows this. He knew this. And those who, (laughs) the only difference is that God who lives outside of time, he's able to foresee the choices that we've made. He doesn't control you in the sense of making you do anything. Love doesn't do that. And God who is love doesn't force you to do anything. You have a choice to make. In marriage, you have a choice. After, you know, the feeling is great when it's there. Everybody loves the feeling of love. I mean, that, that's, that, that's easy. When that happens, you don't even have to, you know, it just takes over. But real love is when maybe you don't feel the warm fuzzies. And you have to honor your oath that you took before God until death do us part. I will honor you. I'll be by your side. In sickness and health, for richer or poorer. And how many marriages today are not that way at all? You don't meet my needs, I'm out of here. I thought something different was going to happen. I thought you were going to be my slave. And now that I see that I actually got to invest something, I'm out of here. That's the way America is. It's the way many marriages are in America, and even in the church. This is why we have to understand this love of God and his character. Your life has a purpose. Each one of your lives has a purpose. Are you interested in finding out what that is? Seek the Lord. That's what I did. He's showing me, and he's doing things that were beyond my control. I could never, <laughs> there's no way. It's impossible for me to do anything of any eternal value, but through God who works in me and works in you. Love that about him. Notice in verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
but of God. The new birth is the will of God. It's his will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there is nothing in man that naturally craves God. Nothing. It has nothing to do with human desire. It has nothing to do with heredity. When you're born again, it is of God. He initiated, and we simply respond from his initiation. That's what worship is. That's what worship always is. God does, and we respond. We worship because of what he has done. He first loved us while we were yet sinners. And as a result of that, I respond back to him because of what he initiated. That's what worship is. Worship, it doesn't originate even in me. I'm simply responding to what he has already done out of thanksgiving and gratitude. That's where worship begins. Notice, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, Jesus' deity is the most significant truth in the universe. Along with this verse, and along with the very first verse, the word was, in the beginning was the word, the word was of God, the word was God, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. These things are the most significant things in all of the Bible, some of the most significant truths of the Bible. And the word became flesh. What did John say in his epistle? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, notice, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That's what Jesus is. And John says, We bear witness to that. We saw him. We handled him. He wasn't just some phantom, as the Gnostics would proclaim. He was God in the flesh. I handled him. Thomas could see I stuck my finger in his wounds. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The mystery of the incarnation, how awesome it is. This is the truth that Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science Cult, did not comprehend. She said that there's no way that God can be manifest in the flesh. That was, her, that was what she believed in. But yet, Colossians, what does it tell us? It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And in Timothy, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Kind of blows holes in her ship. The gospel, the truth of the gospel, blows holes in all of the ships. Nothing stands next to the word of God. Everything must bow. My knee bowed to him, and it's continuing to bow. How about yours? You still bowing your heart and your knees to the Lord? You know, there's something, again, not to be legalistic or anything, but... There are times when I come up here, I I like to come up here on Saturday nights for a couple hours to study and pray before the service on Sunday morning. And one of the things I love to do is sometimes I just get on my knees and I just pray. And there's something about that position. And again, you can be praying in a long chair. You can be praying in a chaise lounge. And often I pray with my feet up. But sometimes I just get on my face and in my office and I just pray and I thank him. And I just worship him. 
And there's something about that. Physically putting myself in that position as if I'm before the throne of God. Because if I was really before the throne of God, that's the posture I'm taking. He was tabernacled. He, the, the word became flesh and, the, and, 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 and dwelt, you know. Um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally a Greek word that means to be tabernacled, to be clothed, to be clothed. And this word is only used like five times in the, in the New Testament. And when you think about the Old Testament tabernacle, it was clothed with badger skins. It wasn't a very attractive looking external and it was mobile. It was, they moved it from place to place as they went. And it's, it was a shadow of the permanent. The temple was permanent. The tabernacle was not permanent. And Jesus was tabernacled in human flesh. But yet, that wasn't the permanent thing for him either. He received a new body, but he moved around as well. And in Isaiah, what does it say? For he grew up, uh, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, just like the Old Testament tabernacle that was very mobile, this tent, this tabernacle. He became flesh and dwelt in human flesh. He was tabernacled in human flesh. And Isaiah tells us that there was no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't come on the scene with his golden locks and looking like, you know, the most fabulous, good-looking guy out of Hollywood. No, in fact, he was just a very plain fellow. You could walk right by him and not even know he was there because the beauty that was in him was inside. That's a whole message in itself. But the mystery of the incarnation, Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the, the, the definite article, the virgin shall conceive. Not a virgin, but the virgin. There's only one virgin who has ever given birth. That's Mary. It never happened again, and it never will. The virgin shall conceive. The mystery of the incarnation recorded for us in Isaiah and the mystery, you remember, was fulfilled when the angel Gabriel came to Mary when she was in Nazareth and told her that this very thing that was growing inside of her was of the Holy Spirit. It was Joseph had nothing to do with it. And that's why the big scandal was such. Can you imagine the people who grew up around them and the parents of Mary and Joseph and, you know, and all their families and people who knew them? Oh, yeah, right, it was by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, great, I believe that. You know they were doing that because they're thinking all oh, these two young people, they just couldn't control themselves. Hmm, not true. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John and Peter and, 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 and uh, James, John's brother, they all witnessed Jesus in his glory. You remember in the transfiguration in Matthew 27. Jesus was transfigured before them, and there with him was Moses and Elijah, and then Peter, which normally he does, he opens his mouth. Lord, let's build three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. And then a voice came over and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and 18 
says, for we did not follow, and Peter writing says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when he made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice to him came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. They beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth. Unmerited favor and truth. And notice in verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried, saying, This was uh, he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, if we look in Luke chapter 1, didn't, didn't it say that John was born six months prior? It does. He was born six months. He was six months older than, than Jesus in the flesh. But yet John is saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's again acknowledging Jesus' preexistence. Meaning that even before he was born in the Virgin Mary, he existed. John had that understanding. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? I'm so glad for Jesus, because what does the law tell me? The soul that sins shall surely die. Merry Christmas. <laughs> The soul that sins shall surely die. Boy, that just gives me a great boost of self-confidence. That's the law. The law tells us that we're condemned, but yet Jesus comes and says, you believe in me and you'll have everlasting life. What did Jesus say? For God so loved the world. He loved the people in it. He loved the world that he, might, that he gave his only begotten son as a gift. He gave him, God the Father gave him as a gift, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that, through the, that the world through him might be saved. That the world through him might be saved. He's the faithful and true witness, the Bible tells us. And notice verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. No one has seen God at any time. Now you may say, well, we see Jesus. The apostles saw Jesus, of course. They saw him. They saw the Son of God. But God the Father is spirit. What does it say in John 4.24? God is spirit. And they who, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And 1 Timothy says, Who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light. That's God the Father. Whom no man has seen or can see. To, him, to whom be honor and everlasting power. In John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who was born from God, or he who was from God, excuse me, he has seen the Father. And he's also declared him to whom he wills. Jesus is the only one who can declare the Father. That's why he would say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the Bible says that if you don't have 
the Son, you don't have the Father. But if you have the Son, you have the Father and the Son. People can say all, all day long that I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Well, it doesn't work that way. It's a package deal. If you believe in Jesus, you get the Father as well. But if you only believe in the Father and you deny the Son, you're still lost in your sin. So when somebody comes and says, well, I believe in God. Well, who is your God? I, Allah. Allah is an idol that Muhammad put in Mecca. He's a moon god. He's, an, he's a demonic being. That's who he is. He's not Jesus. And notice, no one has seen God at any time, but the Son, Jesus, he has declared him. Literally, he has considered out loud. He has rehearsed. He has told, told. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, it says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, Jesus said, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Aren't you glad that as a Christian that Jesus has revealed the Father to you? That's what gives us the great privilege. <clears throat> Excuse me. In, John's, uh, in Jesus' high priestly prayer again in John 17, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and those who have known that you sent me, and I have declared, notice, to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That is a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. The Lord declaring this, the Father through the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Do you see how they're all linked together? The Trinity, the thing that we really can't imagine, we really can't put our mind around, but yet it's true. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all have different roles, but they are all equal. They are all one God. There's not three, there's one. One times one times one still equals one. His grace and his love is multiplied to you and I. His character is multiplied to you and I. So, do you believe the testimony of the Apostle John concerning who Jesus is, who we've looked at in these first 18 verses? Next week, we'll look at the ministry of John the Baptist. Very important ministry. And it was a short ministry, too. Sometimes we think that Ministries, because of how long they go on, they must be really important. No, not necessarily. Sometimes the shortest ministries are the most important. Sometimes the longest ministries are just pumped up by the flesh and the goodwill of people. It doesn't necessarily mean anything that a ministry has gone for 30 or 40 years. It could be all the flesh. And that happens. And yet the shortest ministries, then, as Americans, we think, oh, that poor guy. He was only in the ministry for six months. <sighs> Unaffective. And the Lord goes, oh, really? What he did in six months was more important than you'll do for your entire life. <laughs> Sometimes that is the truth. He doesn't want it to be that way. God wants your life to be fruitful. But are you going to believe the testimony of John or are you going to believe those in higher learning in the colleges and universities who don't know who God is. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't even care. 
Who are you going to believe? Someone who has the Spirit of God in them or someone who does not? I would rather have a youngster with the Spirit of God in him or her speaking to me and sharing with me than 500 or 500,000 intellectuals who have all the degrees, all the pedigrees, who have tenure and have written many books. Oh, and you can get their podcast too. God looks at that and he goes, it's nothing. So how important is it that we believe this record, it's everything. Everything that we are and are about is wrapped up in these truths that we just read today. And if we believe them, happy are we and blessed are we. If you do not believe those things, there is no way that you can be born again. Because if you don't believe those things, the Spirit of God is not in you. But if he is in you, and you believe those things, happy are you. And happy are we, privileged are we, blessed are we, to share that truth with others. Amen? Amen. Love it. What a great thing it is to know Jesus. That he is God in the flesh. And he paid the price. You see, he had to come. He had to come in the flesh. We know that there were pre-incarnate visitations And even after his resurrection, post-resurrection, there were appearances of him, but he had to come and be born in human flesh because he had to experience and identify with you and I. That's why the incarnation was necessary. He didn't just say, well, I'm just going to wave a magic wand and everything will be all right. No, he says, I've got to come in human flesh and I've got to experience. He was in all points tempted as you and I are yet without sin. He had to experience the temptation of the devil himself for 40 days. He had to experience everything that you and I have ever experienced. And then to pay the price, sinless, on the cross. He had to do it. There was no other way. In fact, wasn't that his cry in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane? If there's any other way, Jesus knew there was no other way. If there's any, any other way for this to happen, Lord, I'm all for it because you know what? I'm not looking forward to the pain. And more importantly than the pain, I'm not looking forward for you, Father, turning your back on me on the cross. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. I think that was what he was loathing more than anything else. The pain was certainly bad, don't get me wrong, don't want to underestimate that, but to have God, his Father, for the first time in all of his existence, in eternity past and eternity future, this single moment was the most horrifying thing that he's ever experienced. And that's why he could say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew very well why, but it still didn't, keep him from saying it because what he experienced on that cross was unlike anything, any other human being who's been crucified in history. Because what you couldn't see was what was happening in the spiritual realm. Many people, thousands of people, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of people in history have been crucified, but only one has taken the sin of the world on his shoulders. Nobody has ever done that, and he did it once and for all. Amen? Amen. Let's glorify him. Glorify him in your life and everything you do. Amen? Let's stand. Let's stand. Father, we just thank you for this uh, opportunity to get together and to read your word, Father, and to understand these, these, these very wonderful truths, Lord, that are, that are so 
fundamental to our Christian faith, Lord. Encourage us this week, Lord, and may we share this truth with others because they need to hear it. We needed to hear it, and you got us, Lord. You got us in your net, and we're so glad to be caught. So glad to be caught in your wonderful net, God. Please, Lord, bring a harvest and help us to be willing to go out into that harvest and to lead others and to love on others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.